Welcome to the Solidarity Winnipeg podcast. Solidarity Winnipeg is working to lay the basis for an eco-socialist political organization. By that, we mean we are a small group of like-minded people who work in a coordinated way in community groups, in unions, and on campuses to build grassroots power, to educate people, to be effective eco-socialist organizers, and to build support for the long-term goal of breaking with capitalism and starting a transition to eco-socialism. Because Winnipeg is located on Treaty 1 territory, we acknowledge that Treaty 1 is the homeland of Anishinaabe, Cree, OG Cree, Dakota, Dene peoples, and the Métis Nation. The Canadian state has carried out genocide, ethnic cleansing, and forced removal of Indigenous people in order to clear the land for settlement by Europeans. The colonization and oppression of Indigenous peoples is not a thing of the past. It continues today. But around the world, Indigenous peoples are leaders in the fight against capitalism and environmental destruction. We have a lot to learn from Indigenous cultures and teachings that will help us heal our relationship with the land and with each other. Okay, welcome back to the Solidarity Winnipeg podcast. Today we are going to be talking about Manitoba's NDP in the past and potential future. Um because we have a Manitoba provincial election coming up in 2023. The record of the progressive conservatives in office since 2016 has obviously been really bad, and we're not going to be talking about that in this podcast. We're going to be focusing on the NDP instead. So in the coming year, we're expecting to hear a lot of union leaders and others on the left argue that people on the left should campaign for the NDP to kick out the PCs. And they'll probably either praise the record of the NDP from 1999 to 2016, or maybe say that now is the time to get that. Uh, we shouldn't talk about the shortcomings um, of Premiers Dewar and Selinger, but instead, you know, focus on what the NDP could do now. So we're going to be getting into that long 17-year reign in this episode. But first, let's introduce ourselves. Uh, I'll start. I'm Posey, and I'm a member of Solidarity Winnipeg. David, do you want to go next? Yes, I'm David. I'm also a member of Solidarity Winnipeg. And last up, uh, Bronwyn. Sorry, sorry. I'm Bronwyn. Um, Bronwyn Dobjekland. I teach criminal justice at the University of Winnipeg. Um, I'm a member of Bar None, which is a an abolitionist prisoner solidarity group based in Winnipeg. Awesome. It's great to have you. So let's get started. Let's maybe this idea that your role, if you're in a union or if you're on the left, you're a progressive person, the best thing you can do leading up to the provincial election is to maybe campaign for the NDP or be a cheerleader for the NDP. What's maybe an issue with that stance that we can present? Well, yeah, that's a great question. This, this idea that now's not the time to talk about the shortcomings of past NDP governments I feel like has been used at every single time, <laughs> every single time period. So, you know, the question just remains when, when is the time to talk about the shortcomings of the last government, if not in the lead up to an election campaign where we might have some hope of pressuring um, the NDP and shaping the policy platform that they use to run in the next election. I think that uh, in the case of the NDP government, there was, there was a hope that after their long reign ended, there would be some kind of genuine curiosity about how it is that, you know, the people who formed NDP government, the people who were involved in 
grassroots community activist work who then became MLAs and formed government, um, you know, were either unwilling or unable to make the changes while they were in government that activists had hoped they would. Um, but the period after they fell out of power instead was this time where we were supposed to just, you know, focus on getting them reelected. So we're either always focusing on keeping them in power or focusing on getting them reelected. And I think that there's no doubt that an NDP provincial government would be better for people than a conservative provincial government. But also, uh, we need to be prepared to hold them to account so that they don't repeat uh, some of the serious flaws in their last government. And I would just add that, yeah, well, of course, the PCs are terrible. And people wanted just a quick reminder. It's easy to forget. In early 2020, when the pandemic was just beginning, uh, and the, the conservatives floated these extreme cuts, and this idea of ex very, very large cuts, unprecedented uh, to public spending, which they were so bad that they actually ran into opposition from business. Um, because of the potential consequences for the provincial economy and so on. And they had to really to back off of that. Um, you know, that tells us what they really stand for. Um, but um, in terms of the NDP, I think we would, we should be careful not to um, underestimate what an NDP government could do in a negative direction. If we look at the experience of governments um, like the NDP, not just across Canada, but also in other countries, uh, in certain circumstances, they can actually implement extremely uh, regressive measures. And so it's very important to, uh, you know, look at the history and um, think about the, the future um, while recognizing, of course, there's, you know, you have to be thoughtful about the contexts and the ways that we raise our criticism from the left. Yeah, I'm thinking like where I'm coming from, like crime policy, which is the, is the area that I've been most focused on and the area that um, i I know most about and have had most interface with NDPers about. I there's been this struggle from people who are, uh, you know, abolitionist activists to get people in the NDP to recognize the role that the NDP played in achieving record high rates of imprisonment and policing in Manitoba under the NDP. And that's something most supporters of the NDP either deny or defend, even right and. Uh, there's always this constant sense that, you know, the conservatives will for sure be better than the NDP. And I just invoked that myself when I said definitely the NDP would be better than what we have here. But in fact, um, under the Pallister government in the years since the NDP left power, the jail population dropped. And then in the context of the pandemic, the jail population dropped significantly, which likely would have happened under any government. And to be clear, the you know, reduction in, in imprisonment under uh, the conservatives has been part of an austerity agenda where they don't want to spend any money on public institutions, including prisons. Um, and so it's not like they've created healthier communities with less violence. Um, but the NDP actually was worse than the conservatives were, the previous conservatives were, in terms of their commitment to being tough on crime and to imprisoning people. Um, and my hope would be that um, NDP supporters would want to know how it is that the NDP did that, even though people express, you know, a lot of care for poor people and care about social justice issues. But Unfortunately, it seems like they're still in a significant period of like 
defensiveness instead of curiosity. Um, so that's why, yeah, I'm glad that we're having this conversation. And I hope that many conversations like this continue to happen. Yeah, there's definitely that paternalism still, right? Of like, what's what's best for people and mm-hmm. criminalized people, victimized people. Um, I think that leads us well in, into the actual nitty gritty of this uh, record in office. But I wanted to add, you know, when we talk about Dewar, from my reading about Gary Dewar and this inoculation thing, it seems as though, you know, the NDP in that time were very receptive to criticism and did act in a way that was responding to criticism, mm-hmm. but that was from the right so, mm-hmm. instead of from the left, right? So it's not like um, they're not responding to pressure, outside pressure, um, right. but you know, traditionally it is, we don't want the conservatives to be able to get us for being soft on crime, or we don't want the conservatives exactly. to get us for budget issues or whatever. So then they become more conservative than the conservatives. <laughs> yes, and that's the, that's the way you win. So there's Maybe a number of things. We, yeah, David, go for it. I was just going to say, for people who may not know the history, I think we should just you know, start by saying that it was in 1999 that the NDP was yes. elected after the Tories had been in office through the 90s. Um, and so they were off in office from 1999 to 2016, first under uh, Gary Dewar as premier and then at the end under Greg Selinger. And I think an important part of the context of when the NDP first got into office in 1999 that like activists today should be interested in is the fact that they were pushed out of office by real grassroots activist work. So there was, you know, Choices, for example, which was a coalition of social justice organizations and unions, um, union interests who came together to do a lot of like interesting and creative action to draw attention to the horrible policies of the previous Tory government. They generated a lot of public support. Um, And then many of the people who ended up being elected as MLAs were community activists, came out of that community sector. So uh, Greg Selinger was one of them. You know, he used to work for, he was one of the founders of the Community Education Development Association in the North End. And so um, those people who we understand now, who we look at as old guard NDP, were at one time grassroots community activists and were seen as such by NDP supporters. And I think that's an important context because I think that we are being encouraged to see the current NDP slate of MLAs as particularly grassroots and therefore in a different position. Certainly when um, the NDP was at the end of its 17 year run, (laughs) those people who were MLAs were not as connected with the grassroots, but I think we need to assume that there's the same potential for grassroots people to become completely, you know, institutionalized and, and insulated from grassroots concerns. Um, and uh, yeah, I think that's an important part of the context. Yeah, I think the pr- problem is it's a structural thing, right? It's not about saying these are bad people. Uh, no. I think it questions about what happens when people who have a certain understanding of how change happens end up mm-hmm. administering the provincial wing of the capital estate, right? That's what they're doing. Um, what, and the question is not so much their intentions, although we can talk about that too, because I guess there are actual questions about their intentions on some policies. Um, but, um, you know, what kind of room for maneuver people have and, and what they're actually doing when they're in those positions. Well, that's where I think it would be so cool for some of the NDP staffers who have, many of them have like managed to return to their positions on the left in in community positions in Manitoba. It would be very cool for them to come out and give us some insight into um, the inner workings of government, because I think it would be an important 
moment of political education for us on the left to understand what are the limits of that position of, of being in power provincially. And that could in turn help to inform how much effort we're putting into door knocking for the NDP in the lead up to the election versus organizing for power to pressure whoever's in government, regardless of whether they are our friends or not. And I think, yeah, I think, Brahma, you did a great job of just you know, sketching the context in 1999 a little bit when the NDP was elected. And the, the terrible thing in the years that followed was just that essentially um, the left didn't put very much pressure. I mean, almost none mm-hmm. on them once they were in office. Right. Um, I think there were some exceptions, but that by and large, there was this idea that, OK, we've got them in office and now, you know, maybe some organizations would provide them with policy recommendations and so on. But there was no sense that. Um, now that they're in office, they need to, we need, you know, efforts to systematically push them to actually implement uh, social reforms that would be uh, in the interests of the working class and oppressed people. Yeah, totally. I think that one thing that the NDP does really well is help convince us and even themselves that proximity is similar to power, that, you know, because we have access to these people, because we know them, because we've seen them at community events, because they used to be part of our activist organizations, that that means that we have some uh, influence on them potentially. And therefore what becomes important while they're in government is maintaining good relationships with them. And there have been so many instances throughout the 17 year reign of the NDP where um, I myself have been encouraged not to sever you know, burn bridges with with people who are in power um, so that I could actually have influence on them as if as if any one of us could, you know, like the the it's a it's a false <laughs> it's it's a theory, it's a false theory of change. <laughs> um and I thought change uh, happened when you got to go out for lunch. Y- yeah. Like, <laughs> you know, I think certain kinds of change do in fact happen that way. Yes. <laughs> I think that does work for some people. If you're a business person, I think. Yeah, <laughs> I can't afford that. But that's the thing too, like two of like the different, different roles and like, um, mm-hmm. you know, I, cause I like this conversation of like not being judging particular politicians. Totally. Maybe having a more clear eyed position of like what the state can do, like, no matter who's in government, there's certain constraints, there's like a reason it exists. And that's not for working people, right? Like, Mm -hmm. trying to push back against the idea that um, a provincial government is neutral, or like, looking out for the best interests of Manitobans, working people, but like, they have a different role and and set of concerns. And Mm -hmm. yeah, I think also being a bit more um, a bit more thoughtful about where where power actually comes from, especially if you're fighting for more social movement type of demands. Um, it's really totally. important. Do we want to get into... Oh, oh sorry. sorry, go for it. I was just going to say, I remember interviewing um, one NDP political staffer in the context of my dissertation, and he was a, you know, a friend of mine, somebody who I'd known since I was a teenager. Um, and he was like, people on the outside you know, don't understand that the way government works, it's not like we can just change course really quickly. It's like steering a massive ship through sludge. It like turns are slow and they take time. And I just remember thinking like, well, it would be really awesome if 
you were clear about that instead of pretending that um, we should put all of our energy into steering, you know, a ship through this awful sludge instead of maybe changing the conditions in which that ship is operating, you know, like, like clearing the sludge away uh, at whatever. I, I'm not good at metaphors <laughs> or analogies, but um, I just, I just remember being struck by the contrast between that description and the presentation of self almost of the NDP to activists, which was like, you should be grateful that we're here doing this instead of a sense that like their position in government is one, not inconsequential, but small part of a larger strategy for changing conditions. Yeah. And, you know, if it, it would be nice if they actually did try to set a course that, you know, to extend this ship metaphor, um, if they were actually <laughs> trying to set a certain course and then got blown off course, you know, that's one thing. But mm -hmm. the question is, what was what course were they actually charting to begin yeah. with, right? And um, I I just want to quote from an article that Saigonic um, many years ago, who was an NDP MLA, longtime figure on the, the left in, in Winnipeg, um, editor of Canadian Dimension, um, you know, writing of, of in 2011 about Gary Dewar's years in office since 1999. He um, described what he called a uniquely cynical political formula, which involved taking on conservative issues like tax cuts, balanced budgets, and fighting crime. And in his words, that he left the Tories with little to campaign on uh, because of having taken those things mm -hmm. up. Uh, and then he goes on to write that in the words of a top official in Dewar's office, it was a strategy of, quote unquote, inoculating itself against criticism from its traditional foes. And it worked, disarming the business community and even the pr province's right-wing media. In fact, Dar Dewar was the darling of both media and the business community. And that idea of inoculation uh, comes directly from uh, Don Flanagan, who was a senior policy analyst, uh, advisor, senior policy advisor for, for Dewar. The idea being that uh, if the NDP in office gives its traditional enemies some of what they want, then that would inoculate the NDP from criticism. But as two more left-wing NDPers, Errol Black and Jim Silver uh, wrote about this, it actually means, it meant defining the government strategy through in relation to the demands of its traditional enemies. And I think that sums up a lot of um, the, the overall approach that they took in their in their years in office. Even just the goal, like, is the goal winning elections? Because Gary Dewar won a lot of elections. Mm -hmm. um, or is the goal to enact, like, certain policies, right? And it, it really seems, if you look at the record of the NDP in office, like, they the main thing they were able to do is win a lot of elections and, like, not not much else, especially in terms of a progressive party. I guess they built the arena. Um, and <laughs> they got the arena built and the Human Rights Museum and uh, some other things that we can we can talk about if we want to talk about. Uh, yeah. Especially if you want to talk more about the criminal justice stuff, Bronwyn, that would be great. Yeah, sure. Yeah, moving to this this question of what actually was the NDP's record in office. I have to admit because because my focus is on criminal justice, I'm I'm mostly well versed in the bad like shitty things that they've done. <laughs> and I know that part of uh painting like a nuanced realistic picture of of the future with a potential NDP government is also acknowledging the good things that they managed to achieve. Um, I think in the area of healthcare, for example, they did manage to turn around a lot of the significant severe damage that the Tories had done previously. So I, I, I hope that there's space to acknowledge that. But um, 
in terms of, of crime policy, I heard that term inoculation a lot when I was talking to NDPers about crime policy. And when I say NDPers, I mean like political staff, um, MLAs, and also the kind of supporters who make up the, <laughs> the top brass of the party leadership. Um, so the idea that the NDP will never be seen as the tough on crime party. Um, that's that's something that they've continued to take for granted, even as they have become absolutely the tough on crime party. And in the lead up to this next election, I have heard from people within the NDP that, again, they're coming back to this idea that um, the public is always going to see the Conservative Party as the tough on crime party. And the public wants tough on crime. The public wants this. The public wants that. They talk about the public and they take this idea of a particular public for granted. Um, I think about Stuart Hall's writing about Margaret Thatcher and the Labour Party, <laughs> um, that particular conjuncture. And I think about our current conjuncture. And he talks a lot about how the Thatcherites and conservatives more broadly take on an educative role for the state. They actually, conservatives are much better at kind of shaping public opinion. And, and raising particular types of consciousness. And the NDP government has always had this kind of defensive posture where they imagine that the public is a certain way and they don't take the opportunity of being in power or campaigning to shift public views about things like crime policy. So for example, under the NDP, I mean, I can just, this list is like, it's long, <laughs> but for example, they increased jail capacity by 52%. So they added 650 jail beds um, during their time in office. They more than doubled provincial police spending by 2011. Um, they ultimately produced a 113% increase in imprisonment between 2000 and 2014. They pursued zero tolerance policing and charging policies from during the time they were in office, there was a, a 60% increase in the rate of Indigenous male admissions to custody. So in Manitoba, it is definitely the case that when imprisonment increases, it is most likely to be Indigenous imprisonment that's increasing. And uh, the fastest growing imprisoned population under the NDP was Indigenous women and Indigenous youth. And um, this is just something that it's it's really stark so the, the justice budget under the NDP doubled. Um, it went from 300 million to 600 million adjusted for inflation over a 15 year period. So they just took the share of provincial spending for justice and, and really ballooned it. And Gord McIntosh, who was the first justice minister under Dewar's government um, would say that this is because, you know, while they were developing the platform to run in the 1999 election, they canvassed people in the North end of Winnipeg and in the West end. And they heard that crime was a real concern, that people wanted more police, people wanted tougher on crime stances. And they took that and they ran with it. And they took Gary Dewar, you know, co-opted literal Tony Blair language. He's He was like, we want to be tough on crime and tough on the causes of crime. Tony Blair was his, I guess he really liked the idea of that guy, which is so embarrassing. Um, <laughs> uh, so they managed to do this, this tough on crime thing in the context of an idea that they were both tackling 
poverty and crime. They were separating out, you know, the good poor people from the bad poor people. They were helping the good poor people, punishing the bad poor people. Um, and they produced this really inflated um, carceral state. And uh, I'm very concerned that going into the next election, there hasn't been a reckoning with that at any level of the party. Um, among the, some of the new MLAs, I think that there's a taken for granted sense that because they're new and because the face of the, of, you know, the party has shifted, there's many new MLAs, um, that they won't make those same mistakes. But it doesn't seem like they're even prepared to campaign on a non-tough on crime agenda. So that kind of remains to be seen. Yeah, that's, you know, I think is, is really sobering for people who haven't heard it before to actually uh, think about what that means in terms of the, what the NDP did in office on, on that front. Because I think a lot of people who haven't heard that before would be, will be surprised to hear that, right? The, the, the huge numbers. Um, I'll just say a few things about a couple of other parts of um, what they did in office. When it came to, to workers' rights, they, after they were elected in 99, undid some, but not all of the... Uh, reactionary changes that the Conservatives had made uh, to labor law to, when they were attacking union rights in, in the 1990s. They made some very minor changes to the Employment Standards Code, the law that provides a minimum and very weak floor of, of workplace rights for all workers. Uh, they made some small changes to the workers' compensation system, uh, but they refused to pass uh, legislation against scabs, replacement workers, uh, during strikes. Uh, and in general, they didn't really do anything to tilt the balance of power in a direction that would be more favorable for workers. And it's interesting that, to quote uh, Errol Black and Jim Silver again, they described the uh, NDP in office under Dewar as not especially labor-friendly, which I think is, is accurate, uh, despite mm -hmm. the fact that there's a kind of general consensus in union circles um, that the NDP is our friends um, and that they're labor-friendly. You know, I would say there's less criticism from the left of the NDP in the labor um seen now than there was in the past uh, because of the weakening of what we might call a left within the labor movement. And when it came to fiscal policy, overall, their approach to spending, um, you know, taxing and, and spending, the NDP always accepted the basic parameters of uh, neoliberal capitalism. You know, neoliberalism is a way of organizing capitalism. It has the, the basic idea that the uh, role of the state is to dismantle barriers to corporate profit. Uh, and while they didn't generally push forward neoliberalism in Manitoba under um, in their years in office, they certainly didn't undo it either. And, you know, they tried to use government spending to foster capital investment in the province and to, in some ways, reduce inequality. And I think, as Bronwyn said earlier, to try to uh, repair the damage that was done, especially to healthcare under the Conservatives before them. When it came to the, the so-called Great Recession of 2008-2009, which didn't hit Manitoba as badly as it hit some other parts um, of the so-called Canada, and Canada was hit less um, severely than many other countries. Uh, the NDP responded with economic stimulus spending, and they amended the so-called balanced budget law, which they inherited from the Conservatives before them. Right, they, they kept it in place, that trademark neoliberal piece of legislation. Uh, but they, they amended it to allow them to uh, avoid having to implement harsh cuts to public spending. And in their last term in office, they both tried to slow the growth of government spending and at the same time increase revenue through increasing the provincial sales tax, which was, that was their main measure there. And of course, it was very politically damaging for them. That was used against them a lot. 
Um, but in, in general, the way they responded to the recession in 2008, 2009 was in no way radical. It just wasn't orthodox neoliberal slash and burn austerity. Um, and in fact, their approach was similar to the approach that was later recommended by, for example, that well-known radical organization, the International Monetary Fund, um, because the IMF and some other you know, similar institutions came to the conclusion later on that austerity limits uh, lowers economic growth. And so it's not actually good for capital in, in certain ways. And so that's the kind of approach that the NDP took when it came to responding to that crisis. Um, and a lot of this can be forgotten when all people hear about is the PST increase, or, you know, they talk about the, uh, the alleged spending that they, you know, spending spree or something like that, that, uh, that the NDP engaged in. But what they were doing was simply trying to manage the economy in a way that would be uh, you know, most advantageous um, for business while av avoiding you know, big cutbacks, which they didn't particularly want to do because they didn't want to attack their own base, but they also um, you know, thought that it would even further weaken their, their chances of getting reelected. So I think there were both those considerations on their mind at the time. Yeah, thanks. I, I learn a lot when you do those economic, political economic rundowns, David, of the NDP's time in office. I also, um, I'm thinking about what is relevant for, um, you know, activists to understand about how the Manitoba, the Winnipeg that we live and work in was shaped by the NDP's long time in office. And I think also about their spending on neighborhood, the neighborhood organization infrastructure, nonprofit neighborhood organizations, or what is sometimes referred to as the nonprofit industrial complex. So one of the contradictory ways that they, uh, you know, spoke to their their grassroots base was to um, put a lot of money into neighborhoods alive, which um, I should have prepared better to describe what exactly that is. But um, it 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 basically funded a, a network across the province of um, neighborhood-based organizations that were largely, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Like homeowner organizations. So like, for example, Spence Neighborhood Association, um, the way that it exists in the present um, is, is largely because, at, you know, when the NDP came into office, that, neighbor, that organization already existed as an association of homeowners for neighborhood improvement. But the NDP empowered those types of organizations with more funding um, and more responsibility for kind of doing community-based social service provision based on the idea um, that is correct in a lot of ways or is evidence-based that social services, when... Um, delivered at the community level can be more responsive, more sensitive to the needs of particular communities rather than just these large scale kind of social service bureaucracies. Um, however, the, the contradictory element is that this was kind of a, a downloading of, of social service responsibility onto organizations that operated on and continue to operate on, you know, short-term grant-based funding instead of core funding um, that continue to not ever really be able to meet the needs of the people in the communities that they operate in. And instead of are constantly kind of just trying to keep people alive to fill in the gaps, et cetera. So this context of widespread but underfunded nonprofit organizations that provide a lot of people with kind of stepping stone jobs, like a lot of a lot of young people of my particular generation, for example, um, who were like not politically conscious or aware under the Tories and then 
became politicized in part through their jobs at these neighborhood-based nonprofits. Like that's that constitutes a lot of people <laughs> and became politicized in this very particular way where they developed a commitment to what they understood to be kind of nonpartisan service provision as politics um, instead of politicized and political understandings of the conditions that they were working within. Like, I think that the way that the NDP's time in office shaped the consciousness of the people who worked within that infrastructure is also really important. And I think that that consciousness has been shifting and that my read of the people who are working in those neighborhood organizations now is that there's much more of a desire to to be political. There's much more of a political analysis in part because their funding has been starved a little bit. So I'm not saying that that's, you know, it's not good that they have less funding, but um, in part because the model that the NDP set up where they would be just sustained enough through these grant, this grant-based funding um, has fallen apart a little bit. And people are like, well, you know, like this isn't a viable <laughs> route to change. Um, but anyway, I do think that uh, that is a condition that's somewhat, unique to the Winnipeg and Manitoba landscape. Um, and it also relates to, um, I think, the way that criminal justice spending came to be um, accepted and understood by um, NDP supporters who uh, considered the people that were being served by these neighborhood organizations to be in need of some kind of intervention whether it be social service intervention or criminal justice intervention. Um, and that's kind of a, the nonprofit mindset rather than an understanding of these people as people who need, you know, political power and material, um, you know, kind of foundational material support rather than like social work or punishment. I think that's really, you know, bang on. And I would just add only that I think that same kind of layer of people who have a, this idea of a, you know this nonprofit road to social change or whatever you want to call it? Um, think that politics of a certain kind is also um, part of the explanation of why there hasn't been more active opposition uh, mm -hmm. under the Tories. I think that that kind of politics prepared people very poorly. It didn't prepare people at all to actually have a militant fight back um, when once the NDP left office, and which then shapes the situation that we would be in going into a future NDP government, right? Because Hopefully mm -hmm. the NDP will win the next election, but it won't be um, coming to office on in a context of grassroots insurgency or anything like that. Um, so I think it was just we need to make that connection between mm -hmm. those things. That's fascinating. I didn't I didn't know that Bronwyn, um, but I'm very familiar with the nonprofit industrial complex in Winnipeg. Yeah. So very interesting. That was like, uh, oh, wow, it all makes sense now. Yeah, um, yeah. And I mean, I think it also relates, and this is like a bigger conversation about the future of political organizing, for sure. But also, I mean, those people were neither taught to think of themselves as political actors or workers, really. Like, it's not a unionized sector, for the most bingo. part. <laughs> right? <Bingo. Yeah. laughs> um, it's people who are like, actually, like, hyper exploited. They're asked to work um, long hours because they care um, under conditions that are often like dangerous for them doing work that isn't either providing adequate services or producing political change. 
Um, okay, should we move on to, or no, do we, okay, never mind. Backtrack for one second. Do we want to discuss um, maybe some of the the context of why we, we you already you both already provided some of that that context of why the NDP did what they did in that time? But um, is there more we want to say on that point? I think it's worth zooming out just a little bit, yeah. um, to, and maybe we can talk about a few things that we haven't said yet. To start with, I guess there's the question of what was the actual ideology of the NDP in office, or what was the, what was their politics? What were they trying to do? And I do think, I mean, it's not a term that gets used very much in this part of the world. It's a European term more. Uh, people use the term social liberal, um, meaning essentially what happens when you take social democracy and you ram it, narrow it down so that all that it, it tries to do is within the parameters of neoliberalism. And I think that's what it is. Just like you accept the framework of the status quo, the form of capitalism that we've got, and you try to make some small social reforms within that framework and without doing anything to challenge that. Um, and I think that's more or less what, uh, you know, what the NDP did in, in office. Um, it's not this, not to say that it was exactly the same as the Blair government in Britain or something like that, because interestingly, they didn't really try to push neoliberalism forward in Manitoba the way they did in Britain. But I think that had to, more to do with, in part, the, the economic context in which they found themselves when they were elected. The regional economy was doing really well for a lot of the years that the NDP was in office. Um, but we should also remember that one of the forces that is at play uh, here is the fact that governments have to borrow money. You know, they're spending more than they take in in revenue. Um, a lot of the time when they do that, they have to borrow money, which means the question of what interest rates are is important and what their credit rating is like matters. In other words, these bond rating agencies that exercise a lot of power over governments by rating their so-called credit worthiness. And you know, if you have a high rating from one of these agencies like um, Standard & Poor's, you can borrow money at a lower cost than if you have a, a worse rating from them. And so there's always this concern about not doing things that would upset the bond rating agencies. Um, so that's a structural you know, force that's acting to constrain, to, to pressure, um, what what any government will do, and so that's part of how uh, they just accept that as you know you, you you can't fight that. There's no attempt to challenge it. So you're just trying to navigate, make sure that their spending decisions, uh, their fiscal decisions, would be uh, deemed good ones by these by these organizations. And then there's just the fact that you know at the end of the day, we should always remember that being in office is not the same as being in power, right? That being elected into government uh, in a capital estate, right? It's not a neutral set of institutions. It operates in order to reproduce the existing social order that we live in. Um, and so it's not something that can just be freely turned in any direction in any way. Not that the NDP was trying to turn it you know, in a really significantly different direction, but uh, I think we should look at those different aspects of those forces that were shaping them in office. And I guess the last thing was just, if we want to ask the question, why did they do what they did? You know, they weren't ever subjected to really significant pressure from uh, unions, community organizations uh, to re that really were pushing them uh, to do something uh, different. There was no real significant um, mobilization to push them in, to the left to, to deliver. Um, yeah. And there were attempts at, you know, murmurs of, of attempts of criticism here and there. And again, that we, many of us involved in those attempts at criticism, not highly organized criticism, <laughs> but, you know, criticism um, were met with the refrain, like, now's not a good time. It's not a good time. Don't criticize the NDP 
while they're in office, like we're trying to, we're always trying to lead up to the next election. Um, I was going to say about an ND, about the NDP and any organization, um, we, we learn a lot about why they did what they did and how by our attempts at intervening or changing or, or, or bumping up against them, arguing against them. And, and I feel like I've learned a lot about where the NDP's commitments to being tough on crime, for example, um, come from in the context of trying to engage with them around those policies. Um, and, I, and I think it comes from a few different places. Um, one of the major places it comes from is some big labor unions. So I think I sent around, there's this article that James Wilt and I wrote in Briarpatch called Prison Unionism. And it traces a kind of a particular history of the MGEU and the strength of correctional officers within that union. And then kind of a broader history of union power in relation to carceral expansion. But yeah, Gary Dewar was a correctional officer. He ran the youth jail in Manitoba. And um, the alignment of the NDP with the MGEU um, is an important story of of how they gained power to be reelected. And within the MGEU, (laughs) uh, there's also important politics there about like why the correctional officers hold such significant power in the union that also has social service workers and many other types of workers. But yeah, there is a commitment to unions as unions instead of like working class politics <laughs> or unions as as modes of building power. So for example, like I did a talk for CCPA Manitoba about defunding the police. And in it, I, in the question period, I named some specific unions um, who have been involved in advocating for increases to policing, like the Amalgamated Transit Union, who advocated for cops on buses instead of, you know, free transit, let's say, or Manitoba Government Employees Union, who advocates for more jails to deal with prison overcrowding instead of decarceration, or QP500, who in the past has has advocated for, you know, increased securitization instead of more money for community services in general. Anyway, the CCPA that is, who has largely existed in order to provide policy alternatives to NDP governments, um, like ready-made policy alternatives, actually just edited out that section of my talk before they posted it online. <laughs> and I had to I had to really struggle with them to get them to put it back. And they put it back with like a disclaimer that they, but like the 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 thing was that they didn't want to upset their union funders. And so there's a there's like an institutional, there's an infrastructure there. And I think this is something that that the current NDP MLAs, I'm sure they understand at a certain level, but like, you know, that was like old guard union people pressuring um, the CCPA from the board about like what the message of the CCPA should be and how we can't criticize unions, even though it was an attempt at like a nuanced conversation about how union power could be mobilized toward other ends, not about like eliminating unions. And so that's the kind of thing where the future of, you know, union politics is really tied up. Like, where do we want to direct our energies toward, you know, a remade NDP? Maybe it would be more helpful to direct our energies toward a remade union movement, for example. 
um, and unionize some of those nonprofits and help them to politicize their work or whatever. Um, so yeah, uncritical investment in the support of particular unions rather than working class power. Policy alternatives organizations also, this is a context, like while the NDP was in office, I think the CCPA Manitoba, for example, saw its role as providing ready-made policy to the NDP instead of building a kind of popular consciousness about what was going on. So their, their work has always been oriented toward telling people in power what's happening with people without power instead of educating people without power about how to build power. <laughs> so I think that knowledge can be used in a different way going forward among those of us on the left policy knowledge can be used to, to build power instead of just to try to speak to power. And then of course, like, you know, liberal racism <laughs> played a huge role in why the NDP did what it did in office in, in response to crime, because um, unlike maybe in some other areas like economic policy, fiscal policy, I'm not sure, like there was a genuine commitment to punishment uh, among a number of um, high level NDPers born of the sense that I think, you know, the racist sense that <laughs> that some people just can't be repaired and that, you know, they need to be locked up. There's no there's no recourse otherwise. Um, and that's tied up in a narrative of colonialism, which says that, you know, colonialism happened in the past. Indigenous communities are suffering in the presence from a legacy of colonialism. Um, and we need to have policing until that that legacy is healed rather than understanding colonialism as ongoing and policing as part of the ongoing production of settler colonial power. And I, you know, criminal justice policy is always tied to racism and classism because in order to lock people behind bars for their problems, you have to imagine them as somehow less than human. <laughs> um, and that racism is structural and it's not going to be addressed just by having new MLAs who aren't, you know, don't hold individual racial prejudices. Those are all really great points. Thanks, thanks, Bronwyn. From there, what can we expect from a, a 2023? We're going to divine in our crystal balls. <laughs> what will Premier Canoe accomplish? What will these new MLAs accomplish? What can they accomplish? What's our role? We've already talked quite a bit about, you know, hints of, of what we, we think the role of um, organizers should be, leading, both leading up to the election and during a potential NDP 2023 government. But I guess we can get more into what we think. Yeah, I mean, I'd like to, I'd love to see some like real, I like, I don't think we should just direct all our activist energy toward getting the NDP reelected, that's for sure. But I do think that this is a real moment where we could use some of our activist energy to get some, you know, articulation of policy alternatives out of the NDP in its position as opposition. And if not getting policy alternatives articulated by them, um, you know, forcing them to defend or to articulate what it is that they're going to be running on. Um, because now is when they're, they're kind of implementing the policy that platforms the messaging that they're going to use to run in the next election. And so they're deciding, like, are we going to take for granted a racist conservative public and cater to them? 
or are we going to try to um, shape consciousness? And I think they constantly have underestimated public consciousness. I have noticed a significant shift in public consciousness around crime and policing. Um, I mean, I, I act like I have noticed it. I, I, there has been, right, a documented shift. Um, people are actually like much less ready to cite policing and imprisonment as the solution to social problems than they have been in the past. Um, is the NDP going to use that as an opportunity to propose policy alternatives or are they going to, um, you know, take their position as trying to inoculate themselves from criticism? I think that we need to be um, engaging with the people who see themselves as the face of the new NDP, today's NDP, <laughs> and yeah, forcing their positions on some things in the in the lead up to the next election. I, I think that's different than like cozying up to them and, and assuming that if we build good relationships with them now that they will treat us, you know, give us things once they're elected. But I do definitely think that relating them in order to ask the question, what can we expect from an NDP government? Um, and to and to probe and to figure out like what is actually going to be new about these people. <laughs> yeah, I think that will be important. Yeah. And anything we can do to put forward an independent agenda, like to put forward, uh, whether it's around, you know, defunding police and, you know, challenging the, the carceral state or around an agenda for uh, improving uh, workplace rights or, you know, increasing spending um, in education and healthcare, whatever it is, like whatever we can do to get organizations to be uh, calling for what's needed, what we, you know, and not starting from a position of just simply criticizing what the, the conservatives have done. Like mm -hmm. to, I think, mm -hmm. and, and to, to uh, I think that would be, would be valuable. I mean, we're not in a great position to be doing that at the moment, given the state of things on the left, but anything that we can do um, will make, will create some pressure on the NDP, right? And, but it's worth doing yeah. regardless of what they do, uh, because hopefully, you know, if they win the next election, that might put us a little bit um, in a better position to put pressure on them and to begin to organize for what, what's needed. Uh, but I think that the big structural difficulty that we face is that there's a, a worse environment in terms of uh, we're heading into a recession, right? I think it's pretty clear that the increases to interest rates are going to trigger uh, a recession, and that's going to make the NDP even more reluctant to implement new policies that have significant uh, amounts of money attached to them. And so it's going to be it's going to be difficult when if we think about what we can expect from an NDP government when they're going to tell people, oh, because of these forces beyond our control, we can't do the following. We can't do these things. You have to be patient with us and, and so on. And that's something that we need to, to be aware of you know, because of the pandemic, because of the, everything that happened since the Great Recession of 2008, 2009. They are in a, in a more difficult situation when it comes to borrowing money in order to fund new spending. And we, just, we don't know, of course, how bad the next recession is going to be. But you know, there's a real risk that, of an NDP government implementing austerity. Um, mm -hmm. That's not a far-fetched idea. That certainly happened in lots of other situations. So I don't think we should have any illusions that getting rid of the, the PCs means that an ND, we're going to get an NDP government and also an end to austerity. I really like the way you put that, that we need like a, an, an independent platform or articulation of, of what people want, not just how the Tories have been bad. <laughs> um, 
And I maybe am slightly more optimistic than you are, David, about the current political scene. I think that um, people, you know, that this contradiction in the nonprofit industrial <laughs> complex that many people have, in fact, been politicized by it, um, by the bad working conditions, by the inability of those structures to meet the needs of people who um, are being served by them. Um, by the, uh, you know, uprisings against police and demands for abolition that have, um, for many people, informed a broader consciousness about budgeting as a political process that, you know, like where governments spend their money to respond to social problems um, is, a, is a political, a set of political decisions, not just a technical set of decisions. Um, and I think that there are lots of exciting politically oriented people who are going to who are going to step up and articulate these things. Um, it'll be interesting to see how people treat those MLAs that have come out of activist circles, because um, I would hope that we would, you know, respectfully, of course, but like treat them like politicians in a, in a political position who need to be lobbied and not fall into the same trap. Um, as uh, NDPers in the past did, where we just, you know, kind of uncritically try to get them elected and then assume that they'll, you know, serve us in particular ways. So I think that we need to, yeah, mostly focus on on building the power and the articulation of the demands that we need um, and respectfully holding every elected official <laughs> to account for those things. I think that positive note is probably, or semi-positive, positive with reservations, uh, <laughs> is a pretty good place to end it, um, unless we have more, David. Well, yeah. So here's this is maybe more <laughs> gloomy, more gloomy, but I mean I, I don't disagree with Bronwyn. Um, yes. What you say about I think it's interesting. It's probably uh, there's a question as well of like we're active and there, for example, what I hear in union circles is quite different, right? from the people that you're describing. So I think it's a complex mm -hmm. picture in terms of the conclusions mm -hmm. people have drawn from recent years and so on, uh, and, and, and really uneven. But I do think there's reason for hope. I'm not suggesting that there, there isn't. Mm -hmm. So if we can articulate an independent agenda and organize around it, um, mm -hmm. and as you say, uh, you know, judge them by their actions, not by their, their, by yeah. their words, then I think that's, mm -hmm. the, because the whole thing is people need to go through the experience. So a lot of people with illusions in the NDP, a lot of people who think, you know, if we just elect these people, things will be different. They need to go through the experience of actually seeing what they do in office um, before they'll really draw, you know, conclusions that might be more in line with what I think we're saying right now. But mm -hmm. you know, we need to have that independent agenda as a place to start with. I hope that the that the like message of this podcast and it's it's a message that I hear circulating anyway, but it's like. We need to just be organizing for power, period. <laughs> like, and we need to be strategic about the way that we use our time to organize for power. And um, provincial elections definitely fall in there within the strategy, but they're not like the whole strategy. Yeah, it's an opportunity that we can use uh, if we are mm -hmm. organizing. And uh, if we, the, the more we can go into that um, opportunity with a clear eyed sense of, what the NDP is and the structural forces that shape what they're doing and um, so on, then we're more likely to be able to be effective. So I hope that's the message people take away from this. Yeah, I would agree. And I also think, you know, where we started with this idea of like, I don't know, I, I imagine a lot of listeners to this podcast aren't like 
getting ready to do a lot of door knocking and campaigning and, and putting <laughs> in those hours. Like maybe you are, and, and maybe it's something you've done in the past. Um, and maybe you have been burnt in the past by like spending a lot of time helping someone on their campaign. And then I literally have, win. I did so much door knocking <laughs> for the NDP. Yeah. Like even the, you, either they win and you're disappointed yeah. or they lose and you're disappointed. Like, you know, we, your point about organizing Bronwyn, it's like, there is limited time and resources that we have. And yeah, not to judge that action, but just like if we can think strategically um, in our unions, in our rank and file organizing, in our community organizing about um, what we can also expect, like what what returns we can expect from, mm-hmm. from that kind of work, if that's something that you think is, is worth your time. Totally. Yeah, just because like, as we said in the beginning, like, you know, politicians are politicians. Like they, they, they need people on the ground, and they want volunteers. And they, yeah. you know, and they are going to like. And a lot of them are charming people, and they'll probably like sell you on a an envision and, and use the right language. And um, but oh, what I was going to say is like I do think, and maybe it's just the people I know, like fewer, fewer people. Like are there are a lot more people my age and younger who um, are people are seem a bit more disillusioned. Mm-hmm. by politics and voting generally but yeah it means it's very important to like provide like alternative ways that you can be politically engaged uh and organizing and also just through that as you said david like presenting this alternate vision um of how to create power and what we would do with that power is really mm-hmm. really important yeah and also yeah just knowing what's what's possible because as you said like they're if they win they're probably going to be like oh our hands are tied we can't do x mm-hmm. y and z but if we have a better idea of what they actually c- could do if they, if they wanted to if they had the political will that's mm-hmm. also um helpful knowledge to have totally well said well thanks so much for joining us bronwyn and and thank you all for listening thanks so much for your work Thank you for listening to this episode of the Solidarity Winnipeg podcast. If you'd like to learn more about who we are and what we do, you can check us out on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Solidarity Winnipeg. But really the best way to keep in touch and follow what's happening in Winnipeg is to sign up for our newsletter at www.solidaritywinnipeg.ca. If you want to reach out to us directly with questions or comments, you can send us an email to info at solidarity winnipeg.ca.